agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined today by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School, uh, but who you know works on the side elsewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, this, this I'm wrapping up a semester at the University of Colorado right now. It is that time of year where we, you know, we're all academic, and in, in that sense, what that means is is we have this weird and unnatural. I think it's a natural flow to life, but I think for many others, it seems unusual that kind of flow. But it is. It's spring has sprung, and that means that uh, graduates are getting ready to get degrees. Uh, it means that we're f- uh, performing finals, uh, and that's always kind of, I find that a fun time of the year. Uh, you kind of get to see all the, and it's sad, too, because you have your students, uh, some of which are, are moving on and growing up and doing their thing, and, uh, and, and you know, that's always a little weird. Now, we also have kind of a, a, a cyclical note here for the politics guys, Ken. I don't know if you knew this, but we are recording, this is the 300th episode of The Politics Guys. So congratulations for making the 300 with me. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we better make this one the best one then. Exactly. <laughs> you know, there's something about an even number. Well, one of the ways I think we're going to make this maybe the best one ever was a few weeks ago, the last time that we had done the show, uh, you know, we, we've had a little bit of a delay because I, I had a surgery. Uh, but the last time we did the show uh, uh, three weeks ago now, uh, we had had joked and talked about how what was it going to take to get Ken on to sign into Discord, which is a big deal, right? Because you know, uh, just listeners saying, you know, Ken doesn't even sign into our uh, our Slack program. <laughs> We're like using, so if we could get him on Discord, this would be this would be huge. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you mind saying this, Ken, but uh, it wasn't until uh, what like a year ago that you even had a cell phone, right? Yeah, I'm very set in my ways. I really, I, I, I usually just don't like update uh, the way I do things. So that would be, a, it would be a great leap forward for me to do this. Right. I mean, so like you're, you're, you're really willing to go out on a limb here. <laughs> <laughs> the Discord limb. And so, you know, Ken and I, we had been thinking and, and, uh, and, and trying to kind of decide what, what might be the, um, be the, the, the baseline to get in there. And so we were trying to think of a way we talked about supporters, but of course, that means that current supporters wouldn't necessarily be able to get Ken on Discord, right? But if you're running on Discord, you might want to, you know, chip in to be able to get him there. Uh, so what we kind of thought we might do is uh, is make this a new uh, uh, supporter's money towards getting Ken on Discord. So what what I what I'm proposing, listeners, is is that if we can get uh, t- uh, $200 in new donations moving forward, that if we hit that $200, Ken, would that get you, would, th- would, would that be sufficient to get you onto Discord? Yeah, that would probably be sufficient to get me to learn how to get on Discord and maybe to go on like once a week or something. Okay. Once, well, that's interesting. Maybe if it was more, you might do it more often is what you're saying, is what I'm hearing. It's so possible. Maybe, so if supporters <laughs> somehow beat that goal, so maybe they, you know, they went way over the goal of, uh, of $200 new in support for the politics guys, you know, Ken might get on twice a week, you know, like double that or something crazy. Do that in the summertime if there was tremendous uh, outpouring of support for it. Tremendous. I like that. Tremend, I would like to see tremendous outpouring of support. Okay. 
So listeners, what what I have got Ken uh, hogtied now is how we put it back in Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he is agreeing now. So if we get to two hundred dollars in new support, uh, so if you raise your if you raise your support contributions, uh, even just a dollar, right? You, you, that's a, that's going to be a half percent towards getting uh, Ken on the discord. And, you know, although he's not exactly identifying what that tremendous support is, if we can, if we can overcome that goal, uh, it sounds like we'll get even more Ken. And I would have to be honest, Ken, uh, I, I just think it's, it's, it's phenomenal that we might get you on a social media platform. It just tickles me. (laughs) (laughs) I have been, uh, yeah, I've been uh, very, very reticent about making that, that dive, but I, uh, it, it, you know, if, if there's if there is enough of an outpouring of support, I could be induced to do it. I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, this is wonderful. This because uh, we, we'll, we'll have some debates. And uh, and as a matter of fact, I mean, you already get cool things for being a supporter. And we'll talk about some of those more later. But uh, including the bonus show, we're going to take on some discord questions. So, you know, uh, Ken might even get on there and answer some of those questions sooner. Now, let's get into our, our main show, though, Ken. And because okay. there's a lot, a lot, I mean, this is, I say every week that we do the show, I always say, there's been a lot going on this week. Is this, I guess as if that's something, you know, unusual. Uh, but I think sometimes uh, a lot of people don't always pay attention to some of the things that we do on the show uh, because maybe they fly under the radar. But the, the first story that we need to take on, I don't think flo- flew under the radar, anybody's radar. Uh, and that was uh, this past week, of course, Biden announced uh, in his first joint session of Congress, his American Families Plan. And it's an ambitious plan, uh, whether you're pro or con. It's a $1.8 trillion proposal. Uh, and that is in addition to his already proposed infrastructure plan uh, that, we, that the two of us actually talked about on this show several weeks ago uh, that clocked in at $2.3 trillion. So collectively, these kind of two sides to his plan, his infrastructure plan and the American Families Plan, uh, is going gonna, is gonna to cost approximately $4.2 trillion. Uh, now, unlike the infrastructure plan, where we had some disagreement a few weeks ago, Ken, mm-hmm. the American Families Plan does in- include a more extensive tax overhaul in order to pay for a portion of it. Uh, so for most families, this is going to be a direct payment, especially for children and or a tax cut. Uh, but the vehicle for uh, increasing and trying to pay for uh, at least some of this proposal uh, is, a, is an increase of the corporate tax rate uh, to 28% from 21 to restore the old individual uh, top income bracket uh, at 396 from 37%. It would also raise capital gains uh, taxes up to 39.1% for those earning over a million dollars, effectively making it tax like ordinary income. And then finally, it would also raise the corporate income tax uh, for 15 years. It further looks to expand the IRS's budget. uh, And the goal for that, of course, is to allow the IRS to get into delinquency and a lot of other unpaid tax issues. The idea is is that by uh, expanding kind of the reach and the teeth of the IRS, we can uh, uh, pull in and collect on some of the taxes that go unpaid, especially from some more wealthy uh, individuals. Now, the big programs for the American First uh, uh, proposal includes uh, universal pre-kindergarten, universal community college, and expansion of financial aid, uh, along with a host of tax cuts and direct payments to families, uh, including an extension of the direct payout uh, for children through 2020. 
5, which hasn't actually happened this year yet, but will uh, be starting in July. Uh, and in, in this case, it would only be in 2021, but this would extend it out to 2025. Now, as we talked about last time, and I predicted though, and I'm, I'm curious where we kind of fall on this, whatever you think of the merits of the spending, uh, the revenue increases proposed don't cover the payouts. As analysts pointed out on Wednesday, uh, Biden's proposal adds up to 15 years of taxes for eight years of spending, which is an unusual way of doing the accounting. It means you're not actually uh, covering all of it in the way that you normally would. Um, and further, given some of the responses, if we just even look at the Democratic side of the aisle, uh, it seems if it's unlikely that there's going to be the political will to increase spending as much as Biden wants. Uh, and assuming that the uh, spending portion stays somewhere where it is, which is popular, this means we're going to have an even bigger potential gap. Um, and that, of course, doesn't even count what we're spending for the infrastructure proposal, uh, which does not appear to for much of itself. Uh, so there's really no Republican support at this point for the bill. That's not I don't think that's a big surprise. Uh, Republicans are never going to be OK with higher taxes on the rich. Um, but what worries me isn't so much that side of things. I think we can do some rejiggering the taxes. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of happy that Biden includes this, which he did not with the uh, infrastructure bill. Uh, but I, what worries me is that I don't think a Democratic only Senate even uh, is going to be able to get all those tax cuts, uh, excuse me, those tax increases through. And so I think for all the talk of fix, fiscal f responsibility, um, we're going to, we heard from Democrats during the, the Trump tax cut time that we're simply going to have the other side of the coin. Now, I think you probably have a, another side to that. So, uh, you know, in an era where we are, have this, uh, well, as a matter of fact, the, the highest deficit we've had uh, in a uh, October through March. What do you think about the proposal, uh, both on the spending and on the cut side? Yeah, I mean, I, I do share some of your concerns, but maybe just not to the same magnitude uh, that, that you have them. So um, I, I, I accept the um, uh, analysis that you just cited that, um, that the, these taxes would have to last 15 years to just pay for the first um, eight years of spending. And presumably some of that spending by then would be re-upped into the second seven years. So right. that means the taxes would, would never cover it. So, um, yeah, I don't think that's ideal. Um, I, I think that's, you know, I, as, as we talked about earlier, as, as a Keynesian, I think that's OK during years like 2020 um, when there's a big drop off in the in the productivity of the economy. But but I don't think that's a good um, footing to be on um, every year. Um, so I, I, I would like to see a little more on the, the revenue side. Now, one thing I do think, you know, you were talking about how the, some of the Dems might not be willing to put through, for instance, even the 28 percent rate for corporate uh, taxes. I actually think they will, because I, I think the the concept here of, of you know, Democrats saying they, they're not necessarily committed to going all the way to 28, they'd be willing to negotiate, is that they would be willing to negotiate in exchange for Republican votes. But I think if they don't get any Republican votes, and I don't think they will, um, then I think it's going to stay at 28. You know, I think I think if Republicans were saying, OK, if you lower it to 25, we'll, we'll vote for it. Then I think the Dems would say, OK, well, we'll lower it to 25 then. But I but I don't I don't see that actually happening. I don't see a single Republican vote coming through. And thus, I see no real reason to lower it below 28. I think Manchin, you know, is is the one who's going to be the kingmaker here and decide what this rate is going to be. I think uh, Biden's uh, speech was largely um, directed at Manchin. But ultimately, I think, you know, West Virginia, almost more than any other state, 
would be a huge beneficiary from this. They've got they're going to have more people on the on the side that would be benefiting from this, and and very few um, you know big corporations or big billionaires um, in West Virginia that would be paying this tax. That um, I, I think the logic is at least it'll go to the twenty eight. And I, I also think there's more possibility than people are projecting. Maybe that if you bump up the um, IRS and and uh, uh, have more enforcement, you know they're saying right now the projection is that eighty million spending on that. Could yield four uh, eighty billion in spending could yield four hundred billion in revenues, but I would not be shocked if it could actually um, give more than four hundred billion in, in revenues. So well, that's and, one to area fa- where- and to be fair on that, you know, there have been some uh, analyst reports that suggest that could be as high as a trillion. Mm-hmm. I'd yeah, be optimistic. I, I, I'd be optimistic about that because I think you know what people are focusing on right now. When they're saying the four four hundred eighty will produce four hundred billion, is the 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 large corporations? You know, we know, for instance, that fifty five of the largest corporations in the country collectively paid zero tax in twenty twenty, and then people are also focusing on the the very rich individuals. But I think that actually, with more enforcement, besides those groups, which would be the primary target groups, I think there's just a huge number of you know medium sized and small businesses. That cheat a lot on their taxes, and uh, and that you know if there was more enforcement directed against that, um, you know, people who self-report income, I think the the cheating is is pretty widespread at, at all levels, you know, not just at the billionaire and, and multimillionaire level, and so I think there's potentially um, a lot more money to be picked up just with with better enforcement. But even so, I got to agree with you, Trey. It's not going to reach. It's not going to pay for itself, no matter how good things turn out under this plan. And that 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 is that is problematic, and I'd like to see more done on the revenue side. Yeah, and th- and this is a space where I think we might continue to have a little bit of agreement, and that is I, the other piece of this that kind of worries me, as you mentioned, Mansion, but of course, and the corporate income tax rate. But one of the items that was even more contentious outside of Mansion among Democrats was a number of Democrats this past week had floated their problematic. Uh, thoughts on the capital gains tax for those making over a million dollars, especially from those coming from states like New York and New Jersey. And I, you know, part of the reason for that is, is you're right. I mean, that's not an area where that's, there's not a lot of mansion voters, (laughs) right, who are going to fall into that category. Um, and, And so I agree with you. I think the corporate income tax is probably not maybe as difficult a push for Democrats because I think, you know, corporations paying effectively a zero tax rate in the way that we have things set up is, is un, it seems unconscionable. And, and as a result of that, I think it's a really easy target. Whereas I think targeting individual um, voters is a little bit tougher. And so that top income tax rate, I, I actually think that's where you're going to, uh, on uh, capital gains, I think that's where you're going to have more trouble, Ken, than the corporate income tax. What do you think about that? No, actually, I actually don't agree with that. As, 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 a, as, a, as a New Yorker, although I now live in Ohio, I would say, you know, we talked last time about the salt tax. And, and right, because we had some, yeah, some differences on, that, yeah. on that. But but I think that's much more of an issue for senators like um, Schumer. You know, that, that um, you know, I think the, 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 the it, although it may be true that a lot that almost everybody who um, runs a hedge fund and is a hedge fund billionaire and and declares all their income as capital income and none of their income is ordinary income that everybody like that lives in New York and Connecticut and California um, nonetheless I don't think that um, the, the 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 liberal senators in in New York and California and, and Connecticut actually are highly concerned 
about defending that very small constituency's very unfair advantage. I think that's one of those things where um, if you hear if you hear New York senators saying, you know, well, this isn't fair, this is only going to affect hedge fund people in New York. Um, that's actually one of the things that they're hoping they can they can bargain and trade away. I don't think that's something they're going to they're going to go to bat for. Um, I think it's actually different than the salt tax, which affects very many more people in those states, and they really would go to bat for. The other question I had is, you know, as I as I delved into the more nitty gritty of the of the pay, one of the things that I noticed, and now again, this might be a little shocking for listeners, but you know, if we take the point of view that we want to have redistributive policies, i.e. have these programs paid for by uh, higher earners, it seems to me that some of these are not as well-placed taxes. So, for example, you know, you know raising the, uh, the income, the top-rate income tax, I think that makes a lot of sense. But, of course, as long as we have the kind of deduction system that we have, uh, it continues not to have the kind of full teeth uh, and enforcement we get. And, you know, on this one, weirdly, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of along with uh, Kenneth Galbraith, who argued that, you know, higher corporate income taxes, that's not really a tax on the rich, although it feels like it in the short term. That's really a tax on consumers. It's a tax on spenders. Uh, so, again, I would like to see more of those taxes. If, you're, if you want to do the progressive side of things, and, and I'm OK with doing that, uh, you know, for example, raising that corporate income tax, that's really just another tax. It takes a little bit of time to be seen, but you know, you get down one to two years out and that's really getting paid by, well, me. Uh, and I, I, so I, I worry a little bit that some of the items that could come through, they seem like progressive taxes, but really, as Galbraith and others remind us, they're not as much. What, do you, what would you say about that criticism? That's one of the things I, I had kind of noticed. Yeah, I don't completely agree with that. I'd have to read uh, Galbraith's analysis because certainly I respect him. But my my initial take on this, having not read that, is um, that uh, it'll be paid um, more by um, executives and shareholders um, than by um, consumers. Now, I think it's true with shareholders. You're talking about a, a broad section of the the public who has their um, retirement accounts in 401ks and things like that. Um, that, that you know that's going to mean that that, that that's going to affect that a little bit. But um, you know, nonetheless, I think you're you're necessarily talking about um, you know people with large 401ks and and you know that would probably include people like you and me by the time we're retirement age. Um, you know, I think we're still considerably better off than the average American who doesn't have a large 401k. And right. many Americans, you know, have, have no no retirement savings. So so I think that's equitable. Um, and, and I actually think salaries of, of top executives would be very affected by this as well. It's hard for me to see how consumers would be primarily affected because prices in a market are, are set much more by supply and demand than by than by cost. Well, it, to, to kind of break down Galbraith's argument into a, into a bite size, so I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it full advantage, uh, his basic uh, point is is that the cost of the tax ends up becoming p- part of that price uh, uh, demand curve, and as a result, it then eventually gets baked into uh, goods and services as you move down, so that the individuals whom you want to absorb it uh, will end up not absorbing it, but rather uh, it, it pushing it into the cost, and that then affects that uh, 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 supply and demand in the same way that sometimes uh, luxury taxes uh, tend to do that. Um, that. Again, that's just the bite-sized version of his argument, though. 
Yeah, maybe we can talk about this again in a future show because I'd really like to read that. But my, I mean, I think if we kind of try to think of it at a very simple level, um, you know, if if a you know, let's say a big corporation like McDonald's is is selling a hamburger, and you know, today they have built in fifty cents profit on every hamburger they sell, and you know, today they're being taxed that they have to pay two cents of that in tax, and tomorrow it'll be three cents of that in tax. Um, I don't see that they necessarily are, are going to be able to raise their their price by a cent because if they could have raised their price by a cent, they they would have even before the tax went up. Well, oddly, that's not necessarily what always happens in in the in the case of uh, price setting. So sometimes companies want to do it higher uh, and can't. You can look at that in the in the case of. Uh, technology, for example, which is a, a particularly fascinating one to me, but you're right. As a matter of fact, if, if listeners or Ken, if you'd like to get deeper into this, actually, uh, Kenneth Galbraith's uh, um, association who made policy platform uh, decisions has uh, overview papers on his position on this. Weirdly, as a matter of fact, uh, they had recommended uh, way back uh, in the day ending corporate income taxes uh, and, and transferring that to shareholder taxes. And that was actually their recommendation to try to uh, avoid the kind of, t- uh, of consumer pass on uh, that corporate income tax rates, at least in their analysis, would uh, um, end up coming down to consumers. Uh, so again, if you're curious about that, that's one of the places listeners can uh, go to take a look at that. Now, there's something else, you know, before we had done the show, Ken, you had talked a little bit that you were happy uh, about the direction that Biden's speech took with pushing the Americans First plan. Uh, you were kind of, because he's kind of reconceptualizing bipartisanship, and I wondered if you wanted to kind of talk to that. I had pushed us down the the spending hole because that's always my you know my but you know the politics side of this, or, or I should say maybe the the vote getting and the optics side of this are obviously equally important. So so talk to us a little bit about this emerging idea that Biden's going to be bipartisan, but he's also going to push for this clearly along. I mean, it's going to have to go through reconciliation if this is going to happen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that was what so you and I even talked about this last time we were on as well. But the, the idea that I keep seeing um, reinforced by everything I observe Biden doing is that um, he's using a definition of bipartisanship that I'm very glad he's using. But I think it's not the conventional one because I think he's leaving um, congressional Republicans entirely out of his equation when he talks about bipartisanship and when he acts in ways that I believe, in fact, are bipartisan. And it seems paradoxical. How could you be bipartisan when no Republicans uh, in the Congress are on board with what you're doing? But I think the answer is um, he's he's only really pushing ideas that have uh, broad bipartisan support um, in the general population. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's so broad that most Republicans support it. But I think if you look at the polling on the infrastructure plan and even on the families plan, you know, you see substantially all Democrats support these plans. Um, by far, most independents support these plans. And even among Republicans, you get up to 20 or 25 percent support, you know, with 70 or 75 percent opposition. But then you're adding up to like plans that 70 percent or upwards of 70 percent of the public supports and, and including a significant number. Of, of Republicans. So I, I believe that that um, does make this legislation bipartisan legislation in the sense that um, in the electorate, people of, of, of both parties um, supported in substantial numbers. And then I think the other component of Biden's um, bipartisanship is that he's relentlessly gracious 
to the congressional Republicans um, in his rhetorical style and and not critical of them at all and very um, always taking the rhetorical stance that he's um, absolutely open to input. And in fact, I think, you know, he showed with the water bill this week, um, you know, I think he could have jammed them a little bit harder than he did on that. He let the Republicans vote in a bipartisan way um, to vote to um, uh, fund um, water systems to get lead uh, out of the water, which actually is one of the components of the infrastructure plan. So in the $2.3 trillion um, infrastructure plan, um, $66 billion of that is for water systems. And that was already removed from the infrastructure plan and voted separately on a bipartisan basis. And what what he, it seems to me that what he is doing is actually letting the Republicans have be able to um, s- separate out components they're willing to vote for um, and vote for them, you know, rather than making them take tough votes uh, against that, which I think is also very gracious and very bipartisan. But I think it's clear that he's going to move everything in, in both plans on a straight partisan basis through reconciliation if he can get all the Democrats to do that. Well, and that brings me to, you know, another kind of pragmatic question that I'd thought about I me. Mean, I don't think either one of us think that this bill was going to go anywhere without reconciliation. It's not going to be able to pass the filibuster. But that would mean, though, uh, given that we have two very ambitious plans, that both of them can't go through the reconciliation process. They would have to be combined into a single package to make it through the reconciliation process. Uh, And so that makes this a lot more complicated. And the more I thought about that that necessary uh, uh, combination of things, what do you think about what that says for, I mean, we already have two very individually complicated, uh, sweeping uh, uh, changes, both to the tax system, uh, to support benefits. Again, whether you think it's a positive or negative, I, I think we can all agree that this, this is, a, this is a, a bold and broad proposal each one independently. Uh, so what do you think about its likelihood now that you have to kind of like Play-Doh mush these two together and still push that through a reconciliation process? I think that's what will happen. That is what uh, Dick Durbin has been banging the drum for already. Um, you know, I, I, it, it doesn't automatically have to go that way, but I think that's the most likely way it will go. But, um, you know, it, the other possibility would be uh, that because um, um, Schumer did already get a ruling from the parliamentarian that they they can go back and amend the the reconciliation bill that they which already gives passed, them kind of a third uh, possibility, a third, yeah, yeah, which was the COVID stimulus bill. So I think it might be it might be possible um, to use that mechanism and, and say, okay, the, the if we if we bifurcate the infrastructure plan from the families plan, um, and and one of them can get done sooner than the other one, then the one that gets done sooner is um, the the is get, would be presented as an amendment to the COVID stimulus bill that already passed and, and would be done on reconciliation that way. And then the other one, which might drag out over the course of the summer, um, by the time they bring it up for a vote, it would be next year's um, reconciliation bill. Um, for, for, for the, for, so I think that's a conceivable way it could happen. But I actually think um, from, a, from a strategic standpoint, there's a lot of advantages to the Dems to, to putting it all in one big giant bill, um, because I think that... Um, you know that because one of the Dems' biggest political problems here is keeping all 50 Dems together. Um, I think the bigger the bill is, the more you can appeal to each of those Dem senators on the you know grounds. You know, look, you're not going to 
you're not going to torpedo a $4.1 trillion bill, which has everything we're trying to do all year, just because there's one provision you disagree with, you know, whereas I think like, you know, the more they have more bills, um, the more it gives the individual Dem senators the ability to say, okay, well, sure, I'll move the bills where I like all the provisions, but I'm not going to move the bill where I don't like all the provisions. So, so I, I feel like, um, you know, hurt, sort of hurting the cats and keeping all 50 votes completely unified, even though they do have some differences within the party. Um, I think a good strategy for doing that is to keep it all in one giant bill. And that worked well on the first COVID stimulus bill um, uh, back in March. And, uh, um, and, and, you know, I, I think that and, and it also solves the reconciliation problem that you noted. So my sense is that, the, that what they want to do now is work simultaneously on giving the Republicans the ability to actually join on a few very small other components of this besides the water systems component that they already joined and, and passed. So that there can be a few actual bipartisan bills. But, you know, we're not talking about more than $500 billion out of the $4.1 trillion here. Uh, but then for the rest of it, I think, you know, working on getting um, all of the Democrats on board with one bill and then passing it as one big combined bill. I think the the problem with that, I don't disagree that that's probably the the mechanism that Biden wants to to push this through. And I can see the advantages, as you note, right? You make it a $4.7 trillion bill. It's going to make it a lot tougher uh, to have Democrats vote no against, you know, they, they got in on saying, look, we're going to make some, some, some rather big structural changes, especially on the tax side. I think where that potentially hurts Democrats uh, and hurts them in the midterms as well is then you're going to have front and center in the newspapers that bind number. And, you know, while the COVID stimulus was very popular in part because you had some really immediate hurts uh, and you had the country in lockdown, you know, New York, Texas and other places, and even when New York City is already now planning to join Texas in fully reopening uh, here shortly in the summer, which is about the time I think you would get a combined bill through, uh, and we, we, we don't have the same kinds of unemployment issues that were going on before, I don't think that you're going to see a lot of average citizens looking at that $4.7 trillion uh, tag. They'll probably be very happy with some of the changes in theory for uh, support services. I think you'll have you do have some uh, broad level support for changing of uh, of taxes, but because you're not paying for it, and that number is huge and it is unprecedented in the in the face of how many previous uh, trillions have already been spent. I I don't think that that bodes well uh, for Democrats when it comes time for elections because now you've got yourself attached to a 4.7 trillion bill. I. I, I, you know, if, if you know, if I was the if I was the one running the uh, the anti campaign ads against these guys, I see that as being a much easier midterm hit, especially since in, here on next story we start talking about some census data change, uh, and so one of the you know one of the pos positives I think to having multiple bills, Ken, is you don't then have this singular number that can get e as easily thrown around and at you. Yeah, I, I'm less worried about that. I, I think that, to me, the, the only risk from, you know, a, a massive increase in the deficit, the only political risk from that is if it actually um, affects people's daily lives. And I'm not saying that can't happen. I mean, it might be that this is going to produce more inflation than people are expecting quickly and people are going to um, not like that. That, that. That's a possibility. But I think um, if, if people do, in fact, you know, people with children start getting checks every single month 
um, people's um, uh, people's health insurance, um, you know, th- th- pays out a lot more, and their, their deductibles go down, their premiums go down. People start going to community college for free. Um, you know, many people are going to much prefer that more over theoretical worries about the deficit, and particularly Democratic voters. I, I think the there's some dyed in the wool Republican voters out there who may worry about the deficit, but that that's not whose votes um, the Democrats are really going for anyhow. And I, I think I think what they really are trying to uh, the political benefits of the improvements they're going to make to many people's daily lives will far outweigh um, uh, the uh, uh, political detriments of um, someone being able to you know come up with numbers that are actually such large numbers they're incomprehensible to most voters um, in terms of what that even means about the deficit. So I I think that's a political risk the Dems are pretty happy to take. And I actually think the tough vote here is for the Republicans. And I think some proof of that is you already see that even though every Republican voted against the COVID stimulus bill in March, many of them are already out there campaigning and taking credit for things that are in the very bill that they they voted against. Well, now, as we move on to the next story, though, Ken, I will have to say, I mean, what you just said there was is that the average voter is too dumb to know math. I'm just teasing. (laughs) Just teasing. I'm just teasing. Uh, uh, well, we, we we don't we don't have to get into the uh, the math question, but I I do want to uh, I do want to pivot a little bit because we're 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 starting to have this question about voters and and who's voting in these midterm elections and how is it going to stack up for Democrats and Republicans uh, by turning to the census data. Now, before we do that, we're going to have a brief break. We're going to listen uh, have an ad. Uh, but when we come back, Ken and I, we're going to take a look at some of the early census data uh, that got uh, released on Monday. Okay, so Ken, uh, this past Monday, we got our first look uh, at the the census data. Now, we obviously don't know the full outcome yet, uh, but this is the first time anybody's had their hands on anything from 2020. Now, census data is interesting for social scientists to understand population changes, uh, but politically it's key uh, because Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution requires that every 10 years the population is counted for the purposes of of House representation and, of course, taxes, although that's not as, uh, really as big of a deal today. Uh, and each 10 years, based on those population shifts, uh, the House of Representatives is reapportionment. And what, that, uh, reapportion. and what that means is that each state is given a certain number of House seats. Now, originally, uh, the framers kind of envisioned this as just ever-growing. I, I, you know, there wasn't really a thought about well, what happens if we have you know, 1,200 House members. Uh, but the Permanent Apportionment Act uh, of 1929 fixed the number of House members as we have to go through in my intro class, as a matter of fact. They're going to be doing that in an exam later. <laughs> uh, so if any, yeah. uh, anyway, the Permanent Apportionment Act of 1929, it fixes the number of House members uh, at 435. Uh, and so as a result, today, apportionment is a zero-sum game, or to put it even easier, it's poker, right? So if one state wins, another state has to lose. So if one state gets a new uh, seat in the House, then, of course, another state has to be losing it in order to keep that total at 435. So what this means is is that not only do we have these shifts between the states that we're going to talk about, Ken, uh, it also means that states will have a unique uh, redistricting opportunity in 2021. Redistricting, of course, is when we redraw the boundaries inside of states by state legislatures to determine where House members are going to be. So one of the important things to kind of keep in mind when you're thinking about the politics of the United States is uh, House members are heavily influenced by 
controls their home state's legislature because it is home state legislatures uh, that draw those district lines. And when you're gaining or losing uh, seats, this makes it a particularly fraught time uh, for those redistricting uh, battles. So the big key takeaways uh, from Monday include, well, the biggest, I think, uh, California, the the country's most populous state, is going to be losing a seat for the first time in American history, in its history. Uh, Along with California, Illinois, Uh, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia are all losing uh, seats as well. Meanwhile, Texas will grab two. Colorado, Florida, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon are all going to be getting one. And one of the things that I was kind of pointing out with students and others online was, and it's getting, I think, a lot of buzz among nerds, uh, is that New York, for example, is losing its seat because of just 89 people. Right, it's just 89 people short of having remained neutral, which again points to the importance of participation uh, and the importance of, of paying attention to census and how important getting accurate census data really is. Now, we're not going to have this full of, uh, this full data available until September. We had some delays as a result of COVID, uh, but I think there's kind of three clear trends. Ken, I'm curious what you think. One is we have a long-standing population shift to the west and the south. Um, the biggest increase in this uh, uh, dump of data comes from Utah, which does not surprise me. Um, this really has been occurring since the age of the air conditioner. I, 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 a number of historians point out the importance of the air conditioner for uh, uh, population movement, uh, and I agree. I've always thought there's an interesting poli side book there, but we'll put that on for another day. Uh, of course, two Republican-leading states are picking up extra electoral college votes. We got new potential House members. And then third and finally, Ken, uh, the population is growing older in the United States, which, again, is a trend that we've seen for a while uh, and slowing in growth, coming down to a 7.4 percent increase. So, I mean, I think those are some of the big stories, uh, both in terms of demographics that have some pretty big implications for elections. What did you see in the data and, and what do you think about maybe some of those implications as well? Actually, what I wanted to ask you, one thing you just said I didn't know, you said Utah gained the most people, but Utah is not gaining a seat. No, it's true. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I'll note that uh, I am a New Yorker who lives in Ohio, but was just out in Colorado. So I must have, uh, my move out to Colorado must be the thing that caused Colorado <laughs> to gain a seat while uh, New York and Ohio lost a seat. But <laughs> wait, wait, are you saying you're a predictor? So you lived in New York and you left yeah. and they're losing a seat. You were in Ohio and you left and they... <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the bellwether. So, and, and I'm out in Colorado. Uh, but the, uh, um, the, the um, no, actually, I will say um, one thing I... Um, it is not directly responsive to anything you just said, but is directly responsive, I think, to a lot of the media reporting that I've seen about this. Oh, please. A lot yeah. of the media reporting, um, which you know, noted the, the, the same kind of geographic trends that you noted, that people are moving south and west, um, have looked at these results as being um, um, beneficial to the Republicans and harmful to the Democrats. And I will say, as a, as a Democrat, um, I have a much more optimistic view of, of these results than that. I, I think the verdict's out on whether they'll, which side they'll help and that it's, it's, um, it could be a wash. Um, and and the, the, the reasons I say that, first of all, I think it's, it's significant that um, Trump's efforts to su- suppress the count of Hispanic voters um, seem to have been successful enough that he sabotaged the Republicans more than the Democrats that way. Because I think most most people's projections before the count was actually done um, was that um, um, Arizona, Florida, and Texas 
would each gain even more one more seat than they did. Yeah, right? Florida so, actually um, only gained one. It does. It yeah, doesn't they, get the two that had been potentially anticipated. Yeah, and, and Texas, I think, had been anticipated to gain three. Right? Oh, had and, okay. I had not seen yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Texas had been anticipated to gain three, Florida to gain two, and Arizona to gain one, and they they each fell one short of of what was projected. Um, and I would I would say, well, thank they, we can thank Donald Trump for that. That um, it was Hispanic. <laughs> Hispanic counts in those states were successfully suppressed. Now, I think they were successfully suppressed some in California as well. Um, 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 and, and that may have contributed to why California is losing a seat. Um, but I, I do think California is the only Democratic state with a significant um, Hispanic vote. And that it really was Arizona, Texas and Florida that got, that I'd say, got, got um, you know, they each should have got one more seat probably than they did. And, and those are those are Republican states. Another thing I would note is that um, although we might think of Pennsylvania and, and Michigan um, as um, Democratic states and they're losing a seat, um, they have highly gerrymandered state uh, legislatures. And and and, and as a result, um, even though the voters in Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, more voters vote for Democratic members of Congress than for Republican members of Congress. Um, Republicans have a lock on the majority in the congressional delegation. So, so if, if those states lose a seat, they tend to lose a Republican seat. It's it's hard it's hard to gerrymander those states any worse than they've already been gerrymandered. Um, and in New York, actually, because most of the population loss has been away from New York City area, um, the you know New York New York does actually does fair districting. It doesn't do gerrymandering, but it actually looks. Like the district that's going to be lost is the one um, Republican district on Staten Island, which is the only Republican district in, in in downstate New York. So I think what you might see in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and New York are the loss of Republican seats. Uh, even in Ohio, the same. Now Ohio is a Republican state, and it's 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 gerrymandered right now to be uh, twelve four Republican all the time. And I think if they lose one seat, it's 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 going to be very hard for them to make that twelve three. I think it's going to wind up being eleven four. So I, I think you're looking at many states here where um, the, 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 the Democratic states or the swing states that are losing seats are losing Republican seats. And then you're looking at um, Republican states that are going to pick up seats, but they're, they're not going to pick up as many as their population should have entitled them to pick up because the Hispanic vote was, was uh, the Hispanic count was suppressed. So those are kind of my thoughts on it. I think that you are you're very much right when you're looking at this. <clears throat> One of the things that's important is to think about where are people living inside of a state? Where are those population centers and who are they? And so when you think about that and then how you can have these, as I was kind of mentioning, you have to understand the politics of state legislatures and where you can. Well, I guess something else we need to kind of point out here, Ken, you know, you talk about where these seats have to come from or they can't come from or gerrymandering, right? As a result of Supreme Court rulings, you know, districts have to be uh, approximately mathematically even. Today means you've got to have about uh, 750,000. Well, we'll know here shortly what the newest number is, but at least in the past, it was about 750,000 people per uh, uh, district. Uh, and so what you're suggesting here is once you understand that is that, uh, you know, you can't, you can't cram, uh, you, there, at some point you can't continue to put additional voters into a particular uh, uh, district, no matter how much uh, politically advantageous that might be, because then you would be violating the Supreme Court's principle of one person, one vote, uh, meaning that you have districts that are, that are uh, just functionally too far apart mathematically uh, to be e equal votes. 
Uh, and so as a result, then uh, you have to kind of pay attention to what those are. And I agree with you on that front, uh, just to kind of maybe clarify that um, a little bit more. Now, you know, one of the other things that I think comes out of the census data, though, and I'm, I was curious if this was an area that we agreed on. I, I didn't see this really. This does not seem to be get reporting. Uh, but one of the, the one of the reasons I had mentioned that we see a Western and Southern shift, and I think there's a lot of historic evidence for this, uh, is again the age of the air conditioner. Uh, and in an age where I think all of us who uh, take science seriously uh, and, and the most recent climate science seriously, I think it's a little bit worrying that we see the kind of population increases where we do uh, because those kinds of most people's use patterns for energy tend to be far, far higher in areas like Florida and Texas than they are in other places. And I don't think that bodes well uh, for climate future, especially given the way that we, we just simply don't seem to be able to even agree on whether or not there's a problem in the United States. I think there can be, you know, I think this is one of the areas where Republicans could, could have some winning uh, battles, but they just choose to ignore it. Um, did you see it? I, mean, I wondered if, if that was a trend that you had wondered about, too. I mean, again, climate is an issue that's important to me. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, it's important to me, too. I, I actually, um, you know, I, I think people are going to continue to use air conditioning and people are probably going to continue to move into um, um, southern areas that are hotter. But yeah. I do I do have a lot of hope in um, some of the green energy initiatives that are part of the infrastructure bill. Right. I mean, if, if you're talking about states like Florida, it's possible to set up offshore windmills in extremely large numbers out in the ocean and the Gulf and and power um, quite quite a lot of electricity that way. And there there is money for that in the infrastructure bill. So I, I, I actually do believe that clean energy um, um, could have a bright future and that it will be not as necessary as it would have been otherwise for people to find ways to cut down on uh, energy consumption. Um, but I think also that the fact that there wasn't air conditioning until like 50 years ago means that there's just a lot of um, real estate in these in these southern states that was never developed. And so people are just naturally going to keep moving there. The, mm -hmm. the, the northern states that are fully developed are crowded and more expensive, you know, and, and stuff is older. And so people would rather a lot of people would rather buy a cheap brand new house, you know, somewhere south <laughs> than, than an yep. expensive, crummy old house somewhere north. You know, So <laughs> I, I think that's an inexorable trend. And when you add in the incredible appeal that some of these southern states have to retirees and the uh, um, and the aging population, I, I don't I don't think it's a trend that's going to reverse quickly. I think people are going to continue to keep moving south. And I'll have one, you know, one last note on this because then we need to move forward. You know, your comment there about the positive natures for retirees and the uh, growing older population, which was one of our, our points about the census. I think that is one of the areas where it probably does, in fact, hurt Democrats. I mean, uh, uh, data and voting trends have been clear over time. Uh, older populations tend to be more conservative. Now, I know that one of the arguments from uh, 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 liberals today is is that well that won't necessarily be true in the future, uh, but again, you know as a as a social scientist, my answer is is I, I'll believe that a trend is going to reverse when I when I see some of that data you know start to trickle in. Uh, but that's one area where I think uh, you, you know as as populations grow older, I think that does become a little bit harder uh, for Democrats, and I think it does uh, as well uh, when it comes to um, Issues like taxation, as you were mentioning, we were mentioning in the last segment, talking about um, 
uh, 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 policies about, well, you know, people with higher incomes. I don't think retirees generally think of their retirement income as making them wealthy, even if it could be. And as a result, I think that makes some of those proposals a little bit more difficult as well. But we'll have to pause that for a minute because we're, we're, uh, we need to move forward. Uh, next up, we're going to take a look at Arizona and the Cyber Ninja. Who ever thought we'd be talking about Cyber Ninjas? Uh, but first, we're going to have a quick break for an ad, and then we'll come back and we'll take a look at Arizona and the private company Cyber Ninjas. Okay, so Ken, this, well, starting really at the end of last week, uh, Arizona just, I don't know, it just stopped looking bad. I, I guess the positive side as a former Floridian is, uh, you know, it takes maybe some of the, some of the heat off Florida for its own state uh, issues. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that on the bonus show. Um, but despite multiple recounts in Arizona, uh, Trump's phony election claims just simply won't go away. Uh, and this week in Arizona, despite the GOP-controlled Board of Supervisors releasing a forensic audit in February showing that there were no irregularities, the GOP-controlled uh, Arizona State Senate subpoenaed the ballot from them uh, to do yet another review uh, and hired a number of private firms to conduct that audit, which began last Friday. And it has been fraught with court cases ever since last Friday. Uh, the lead team of this audit is a really unknown Florida cyber hacking prevention company called the Cyber Ninjas. Yeah, the Cyber Ninjas. Uh, Republicans in Florida didn't know about this. You know, I had been involved uh, with things in Florida. I had never heard of the Cyber Ninjas myself. Uh, and despite there is... Uh, uh, the fact that they've never seemingly done any kind of ballot work, uh, the Arizona uh, State uh, uh, Senate has argued that this is the way to go, that these guys are amazing. As a matter of fact, Senate President Karen Fan or, uh, has repeatedly argued, quote, these guys, meaning the cyber ninjas, are well-qualified, well-experienced. Not sure how we know that. Um, now, the cyber ninjas on Sunday attempted to keep their audit private, which raised a lot of red flags, because that's not the general way that you do these uh, uh, kinds of audits because they didn't want to give away their proprietary data. This week, though, um, a judge argued that there are really no proprietary methods that they're allowed to keep secret and therefore struck down uh, that possibility, although he did allow the audit to continue despite Democrats seeking uh, to stop it. So obviously this isn't going to change anything about the election, this audit, but it again, I think, goes into this ongoing narrative from kind of the Newsmax and OANN crowd, that there were clearly irregularities. And if there weren't irregularities, why would the Arizona Senate be using these fancy cyber ninjas? What do you think about the actual consequences of this, uh, both in terms of Arizona, but in terms of perceptions? What, what do you think? Well, I wish this wasn't happening. I mean, I think it, it in a small way, I think it, it um, is beneficial to Democrats because, um, to the extent that there's still, you know, th that that sane, a sane uh, segment of sane Republican voters, um, I think they get alarmed by this kind of thing. And, and um, you know, the, 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 the as you mentioned already, the Maricopa County uh, Board of Election Supervisors, it's a five member board. Four of them are Republicans. And uh, they, um, you know, have, have really um, 
been announcing that this is complete nonsense and that it was a, a fair election that the, the governor. Because again, they did an, a forensic audit. Yeah, they did a forensic audit. And I think there's a certain, you know, when we think about the wing of the Republican Party, that's um, the more traditional Chamber of Commerce Republicans, uh, college educated professionals, suburbanites, et cetera. You know, I, I think that this kind of thing alienates them from the Republican Party and that that could have some benefit to Democrats. So in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, that's an OK consequence for me. But <laughs> but, I, but I, I, I think on the other hand, um, it, it, the harm that's being caused by this is is outweighing any benefit like that, because it really takes a segment um, of the, the, the population who, um, you know, doesn't is 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 feeling like we our, our democracy has has failed and, and we, we can't really count on our electoral systems anymore. And it's, it's um, reinforcing them in that view. And, uh, um, uh, and, 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 you know, it's sort of extending the big lie of the, 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 the Trump post-election period in a way that's um, so rancorous and so divisive and so destructive to the system of democracy where we have, we in fact have free and fair elections. You know, we can't really maintain a democracy if people don't believe that the elections are free and fair when they are. And uh, and I do feel like this is like kind of pouring acid over the um, uh, American public's um, support for democracy as a system. Yeah, I, I like your you know, the, the acid pouring is, is probably not even strong enough of an analogy. And I'll say you know, one of the elements of conservatism that has long appealed to me is the idea that there is a potential uh, for collective and longstanding wisdom. In other words, that in, in the conservative view, it's not a single man in one age uh, whose logic on, on which we appeal, but rather it is the, uh, the kind of collected and co- accumulated wisdom uh, of institutions and ages that allow us to get to some of these uh, better items. And so not only do I think, uh, and, and I think you're spot on, so I don't mean this as a rebuttal, Ken. Um, not only does this burn at the at the, the, the pillars of uh, of uh, trust and democracy, I think by going with something like the cyber ninjas, what you're what you're implicitly arguing when you have longstanding reputable institutions who manage and continue to manage well elections, which is what we saw happen in Arizona, as we noted, the board looks at this and does their job. When you then turn to kind of these, again, I don't know anything about this group other than it's teeny, it's unknown, and they've never done an audit before. And what that says to me is is that you don't even trust kind of that accumulated institutional wisdom. And that is not conservative, right? That is the, that is the antithesis of conservatism. And and not only is it is it is it burning at the pillars of democracy, but it, but it is in fact spitting into the very core of what conservatism is, and it cuts into the core of the idea that we have somehow some disloyal Republicans in the way that Trump wants to picture this, as we saw in Georgia, where if you aren't supportive of Trump and whatever he says, you're not either conservative or a Republican. When clearly in examples like this, this is anti-conservative as its base. It's not even, I mean, it doesn't even fit uh, 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 some of our most basic ideological 
positions. And, and that's just, it just grieves me. I, I just, yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you respond page. to that, Ken. No, I, I, mean, I, I, I like the way you said all that. It, 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 I didn't think of it so much as conservative, but I, I accept your characterization. But I, I think it's just it, it's just in opposition to um, the institutions that we have of, of operating um, fair elections in a, in a nonpartisan way. Um, uh, one thing about the, the group Cyber Ninjas, you said you didn't know much about them. I mean, they're actually affiliated with um, Sidney Powell, who had been, um, you know, Trump's um, most um, of all of his lawyers during the post-election period, she was the one so completely willing to tell absurd, outrageous lies that well, even, she even, even in her in her court filings argued that no one would take her no, seriously. No one should even take her seriously. But this guy who runs the Cyber Ninjas, his name is Doug Logan, and he wrote. I saw that, um, yeah. yeah, he wrote for he he was the person who provided Sidney Powell. Um, with with the documents that were filled with those lies that were being used. Oh, um, I had not read that. That's yeah, hmm. yeah. That he was he so that that um, he put he put together this document called Evidence of Fraud 2020 Election back in um, December, which which um, was the primary document that Sidney Powell was relying on um, in her disinformation campaign, and and that is the person who operates the cyber ninjas. So it's, it's not just that we don't know anything about them. It's that we know that they're from the, the Sidney Powell wing of, um, um, of detachment from reality that, 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 that <laughs> Trump was, uh, was, uh, um, trying to try, trying to uh, advance during that post-election period. Yeah. I mean, at first, a second, I thought you were going to say like, uh, the, uh, the wing of reality. I thought we can't do that. But <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> detachment from reality. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I'll, this is a little bit of a side, and then we have to move on to our last story. But the the number of individuals in this group who in court have to uh, have their lawyers make the case, Tucker Carlson, another, uh, repeatedly that you cannot take what they say as, as, as being true or being serious. I just cannot understand how anyone moves forward taking that seriously. I mean, it's like when, you know, are you wondering if a guy is doing art or not? Uh, you know, or is he, is he in character or not? And so then he comes out of character and tells you, look, I've been, I've been in character for a month. And you, and then you say, no, you haven't. I just, I can't figure, <laughs> I can't figure that one out. Um, but yeah, well, you know, speaking of people whom you can't take seriously, uh, our last story, Ken, is Rudy Giuliani and his home and office computers this week. Uh, so before we jump into that, uh, we're going to have a quick uh, uh, break and then we'll be back and we'll take a look at Rudy Giuliani and his, uh, uh, his, his ongoing investigation. Well, Ken, this past week, uh, federal investigators on Tuesday executed a search warrant at the Manhattan home of former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani and at his offices. The search warrant brought forward in the ongoing investigation by the Justice Department, which had attempted to move forward with it under Trump, uh, was unable to, and has then now been able to move forward with it under the Biden administration. Uh, The full scope, of course, of the investigation is unclear, but it involves potentially deals uh, in Ukraine and the way in which Giuliani did or did not disclose himself as working with foreign entities. Uh, Now, yes, uh, as a matter of fact, on Thursday, uh, Trump, always a man uh, of a great quote, uh, said, uh, quote, Rudy Giuliani is a great patriot. He does these things. He just loves this country and they raid his apartment. It's like so unfair and such a double. It's like a double standard like I don't think anybody's ever seen before, end quote. 
I mean, don't you just long for the days when he was the one making speeches for the country, Ken? Uh, uh, <laughs> then, meanwhile, as a matter of fact, even later on Thursday evening, uh, Rudy Giuliani would go before the great performance artist himself, Tucker Carlson, uh, and argue that he really can't understand why they are issuing all of this uh, uh, evidence. Uh, and seizing it from his house, because, of course, if he wanted to, in his words, he could have deleted it all. Um, but because he didn't, uh, because, of course, it will show that he is completely innocent and that Donald Trump was framed. Wish I was making that up. Uh, and <laughs> further, he argued that he was flummoxed when he once again offered all of the hard drives that he has in his possession uh, that uh, used to belong to Hunter Biden. And they refused to take it during the execution of his search warrant, uh, which gave the great lawyer great pause as to why they wouldn't take things outside the scope of their search warrant. Uh, so, Ken, you know, one of the big items here, and, you know, we've seen some former uh, uh, Trump officials like Cohen basically kind of crowing about the fact, hey, look, I told you they were going to come and get you, and now they're going to get you, and now Giuliani's going to sing, and then, you know, we're going to see things fall down to Trump. I'm not, I don't know if that's necessarily the way things are going to go. But you're the lawyer. What do you think? What do you think about this and uh, where, where Giuliani finds himself? Well, you know, it, it, it is. I've, I've, there's some angles about this that I'll talk about that I haven't seen speculated about so widely in the news reporting. But um, so the 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 warrant itself um, apparently was premised on the um, if the if the reporting is correct, the the, the warrant was premised on the um, search that the search was authorized. Um, to find evidence of, of the crime of not registering as a foreign agent, right? So that the underlying offense would be not registering as a foreign agent. Um, and that would be in relation with um, the, the work that um, Rudy, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani did in, in Ukraine, essentially passing along um, um, Russian intelligence disinformation to policymakers in Washington for the purpose of getting um, uh, U.S. Ambassador Marie uh, Yovanovitch fired, which he succeeded in doing. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is um, um, the, 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 the assumption seems to be uh, underlying this indictment that, that, uh, that his client must have been um, um, uh, Ukrainian or Russian, that, it, that his client must have been um, perhaps the, 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 um, the, the, the Ukrainian prosecutor that um, Ambassador Yovanovitch had, had pushed out for corruption or some other um, agent of the Ukrainian government or some agent of the Russian government. Um, but it, but it would be a complete defense to the, if if the only charge they're talking about is failing to register as a as a um, uh, representative of, as, as a foreign agent, it would be a complete defense to that charge to say that he actually did all of this on behalf of Donald Trump and not on behalf of a, a foreign government. And so that that does open the the possibility um, in my mind that Donald Trump has at least as much to worry about here as as Rudy Giuliani does, right? That that. Um, because if Rudy Giuliani is actually willing to um, testify, and this would be contrary to things that Trump had said in the public at the time that um, the the um, of the impeachment of when he was impeached for his activities in Ukraine, um, but but if Giuliani is willing to testify, you know, my client was Donald Trump the whole entire time, and when I was passing along um, uh, Russian intelligence disinformation to policymakers in in Washington, I was doing that um, on behalf of Donald Trump. And not on behalf of anybody in the um, uh, Ukraine or in Russia. Um, I think that that would that would be you know he, he there's nothing that there's nothing he did would be a crime in that in that context. But but that would that would certainly put some uh, put put the, some finger of blame on Donald Trump. 
Huh. So I, ha- I hadn't recognized that that would be uh, evidence in his favor. So effectively, if, if Giuliani says, look, I'm doing this for the president, that means he wouldn't have had to register that. I, d- I, w- I did not understand yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of all based on the idea that his client must have been a, a foreign government. And I don't know whether the idea is it's officials of the Ukrainian government. And I think a lot of the news reporting has focused on the idea that um, there was a corrupt prosecutor in Ukraine. Um, The U.S. ambassador, Marie Yovanovitch, was forcing out this corrupt prosecutor. And so I think um, that the the, the theory that that mostly is getting reported is that um, um, Giuliani was acting on behalf of the corrupt prosecutor who'd been forced out, um, of his supporters that were otherwise uh, corrupt officials in the Ukrainian government, or perhaps um, his his um, the the people that were pulling the corrupt prosecutor strings who were really in the Russian government. So, um, but he would have had to actually have a client who was an agent of the foreign government um, to be guilty of failing to register as a foreign agent. And so if, if his only client was Donald Trump and everything he did was on behalf of Donald Trump, um, then, then, then uh, I, I think he, he, could, he could offer to make a deal and testify about all that. And I think he could get himself out of trouble that way. And you may remember, you know, even back during the um, when the impeachment, the first impeachment was happening and this was being um, uh, discussed a lot. Um, you know, Giuliani made a few cryptic comments, you know, when people are saying, like, if you did all this on behalf of the president, you know, aren't you afraid he's going to you know, turn against you like he did against Michael Cohen or something like that? And uh, uh, Giuliani would say, oh, no, no, I have an insurance policy. <laughs> you know? So, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering if, if that's what this is. Now, I, I don't know if that gets him all the way out of the woods, because maybe he's being looked into for other things other than violations of the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And again, we don't cons- know for sure precisely all of the scope of all of the uh, scope um, of the investigation. And it does seem to me that um, passing along disinformation that he knew, in fact, knew was coming from Russian intelligence. And there's no doubt he knew it because he'd been briefed on that by the FBI, um, not, you know, passing it along nonetheless um, uh, and trying to use it to influence policy here could be seen as a violation of the Espionage Act, which is actually a lot more serious than a violation of the um, Foreign Agent Registration Act. But I don't think the warrant mentioned the Espionage Act and he hasn't been charged with anything. So we don't really know what, you know, what um, they might charge him with. But but I, I think he will have some opportunities to make some deals and save his own skin, um, depending uh, on um, how much he's willing to incriminate Donald Trump. Interesting. Well, Ken, you know, it's you know, sometimes I, I it's one of the fun things about doing the show is is when we each give a perspective. And today it was definitely you here at the end here where you say, I think. I had not thought about this or, you know, you, you have this whole new, <laughs> I yeah. love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, so I appreciate that kind of, uh, uh, of insight for, you know, what could be going on uh, with Giuliani and it's been fun doing the 300th show with you. 300th and best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's the best in part because we're offering the opportunity to get you to go like 15 steps out of your comfort zone. <laughs> so I want to thank everybody. If you've been listening to the show, you're listening to the politics guys. Uh, we all love doing it. Uh, and we, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, of no cost ways of helping us. And that includes sharing the podcast, subscribing to the podcast. But right now, in honor of the 300th episode, uh, what we want to uh, note to you is, is one of the ways that your support will get you more than even just the bonus show. Here in just a minute, Ken and I will begin uh, recording the bonus show. We're going to be talking about 
uh, a lot of what some of state legislatures have been doing, uh, including here in Oklahoma and in Florida uh, with protesters and others. So if you're interested in that show, uh, again, supporters get access to our supporters-only ad-free uh, uh, content. But additionally, Ken has made the promise, if, if we can get 200 new dollars, 200 new dollars of listener support. So maybe you're already supporting and you, you've thought, man, I really love a show and you want to just add a dollar in or 0.5%. Or maybe you aren't a supporter yet and you think, you know, it is worth $2 to make Ken Katkin have to log into a computer. I'm, I'm on board with that. Uh, you know, so <laughs> uh, we, we, uh, up to $200, that's going to get Ken on Discord, which is a matter of fact, this, this bonus show will be taking and answering Discord listener questions uh, on, on the show as well. Uh, so if you would like to chat with me or Mike, you can already do that by becoming a supporter. So the minute you put that, that money in, you're going to have a chance to chat with us. But if we can get $200 in new support, we will add Ken to that list. And as he put it, if, if there is tremendous support, you know, he might even get on there more frequently, right? So who knows what we can do that. So we would love to see you on Discord. Uh, now, how do you do that? How, how do you put Ken out of his comfort zone? Well, if you want to become a supporter, uh, if you want to go towards our target uh, and become a supporter of the politics, guys, all you have to do is check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics, guys. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com slash support. So join me and Ken again uh, by heading to patreon.com slash politics, guys. And if you are already a supporter and you want to add a couple of dollars, head back and, and increase that amount slightly. And we'll see if we can get up to 200 and make Ken log in. 200 to make Ken log in. There is our hashtag. I just figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> If you've got a question, a comment, or a correction, or just a random thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Nathan Salznowski, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by myself, Orndorff. We'll be back with a bonus show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.